Every Friday night, my family gathers around the table to light the Shabbat candles. We're not religious. I mean, both my wife and I grew up in socialist youth movements where religion was at most a footnote to our Jewish identities. But when our first child was born, it felt important to maintain and pass on to him our identities as Jews. This is a few weeks ago. My sister-in-law and her daughters were in town. I made a big meal. We lit the candles. And then we poured the wine. There are two parts to the blessing over the wine. The first translates to, Blessed are you, King of the universe, who created the fruit of the vine. And for me, that part's fine. I mean, in a sort of abstract way. Like, I don't believe that there's a sentient being that created grapes so that we could get buzzed after a week of work. But, you know, I can connect to the sentiment. Wine is tasty. Let's be grateful for that. But then there's the second part. love this melody. Growing up in an essentially agnostic house, I never really learned the Hebrew words. But I liked listening to my grandfather sing them at the table. They seemed mystical and important. And I think somewhere in the back of my head, I felt that real Jews knew these words. When I finally learned the second part of the prayer, a part of me was thrilled, like I had finally been initiated. But then... One evening after my wife and I started making Shabbat regularly, the meaning of those words suddenly leapt out at me. And that's where things got tricky. Here's what they're singing. You made Shabbat holy through love and through reason as an inheritance and a reminder of the work of creation. For the Sabbath is the holiest day. It recalls the exodus from Egypt. Okay, all of that is essentially historical context for why we're people and why we do this weird thing with the candles and the wine and the braided bread. And again, I don't mind that part. But then there's this. Because you chose us and you made us holy from all of the other peoples. And that's where I get stuck. Because if you look closely enough, you'll find there's a part of every people's narrative, that little story we tell ourselves over and over again, that we are the special ones, that we are better than everyone else. And when you tell yourself that you're better than over and over again, you believe it. You begin to devalue the others. You dehumanize them. They are less and less and less until they are nothing. And, and when you see a people as nothing, well, that is the machinery of fanaticism. So right now, you're checking your podcast feed, trying to figure out if you clicked on the wrong link, and you haven't. This is First Time, Long Time, stories about sports for people who may not really like sports. And today, in light of the recent changes in our world, 
I'm exploring a particular type of fanaticism, my own. A couple of years ago, my family went to St. Kitts for New Year's. It was a lavish trip that stretched our budget, but our friends were going and there was a party planned and so we went. And it was great. St. Kitts is beautiful. There are beaches and good food and cocktails. And on the morning of January 1st, I wasn't enjoying any of it. While my family laid out in the Caribbean sun, I was in a dark room watching an English soccer game between Chelsea and Tottenham. I can't stress this enough. Outside, it was like 80 degrees with a perfect breeze. There were pineapple rum drinks to be had and lagoons to explore with my two-year-old son. And instead of joy and relaxation, I had this like white-hot hatred boiling up inside my belly. And every time the camera focused on Jose Mourinho, the Chelsea manager's smug face, I growled obscenities and I wagged my middle finger at the screen like a hateful, crazed maniac. And even then, I remember thinking, how did I become this person? Is there going to be something to eat at this place? Or, uh, I can't... Going to be the morning I don't know, actually. I don't remember if they have breakfast. Okay. This is the morning of November 6th, 2016. It's 6.30 in the morning. My dad, my uncle Doug, and I are headed to the Kinsale Pub in Boston. We're going to watch an English soccer game between Arsenal Football Club and Tottenham Hotspur, two teams from North London, two teams that play just five miles apart from each other, two bitter rivals. So I have two major fears right now. One is that there's going to be like 12 dudes in this place. If there's anyone there at all, that it'll just be all sort of sad dudes watching the game. But the bigger fear is that this is going to be a, a massacre. My dad and Doug don't care about soccer, and to be honest, I shouldn't either. I didn't grow up playing soccer or watching soccer. But in 2010, something happened, and I became obsessed with Tottenham Hotspur Football Club, a team playing a sport I had never cared about, in a city I had never been to, in a country I had never stepped foot in. And since that moment, I've tried over and over again to figure out how it happened. I think we started to like sort of talk about soccer. I mean, we all as Americans got turned on in, you know, with the World Cup. This is Shlomo. You heard him in the first episode. He's one of two people I credit for my soccer obsession. It was the, it was the World Cup in South Africa. Right, with the Vuvuzelas. I had sort of vaguely paid attention to the 2006 World Cup. I watched the United States get eliminated by Ghana in a bar in Montauk, and then I drank a beer, shrugged my shoulders, and went on with my life. But then four years later... It was the World Cup in South Africa. Right, with the Vuvuzelas. The summer of 2010, I was pretty depressed. My wife was overseas working in Africa. I was an underemployed video editor, and my drug of choice, baseball, was starting to lose its effectiveness. I do remember being surprised when you suddenly stopped watching baseball. That's my wife, Naomi. For the first years of our marriage, my main source of mental health came from Major League Baseball in general and the New York Yankees in specific. I mean, the sheer length of the season, there's 168 games plus preseason plus the playoffs. That meant that any time I felt anxious or depressed between April 1st and the beginning of November... I could just turn on the TV and wrap myself in this warm blanket of the slow and steady, calming boredom of baseball. And the 
pitches a strike on the inside corner. And then all of a sudden, you had no interest in watching baseball. I just couldn't comprehend, like, what had happened to you. <laughs> what happened was that sometime after the 2010 World Cup, I was convinced to go to a bar and watch FC Barcelona play against Real Madrid, two teams that play in Spain. He burst through! Ah! And that was it. Watching Barcelona play was a revelation. These little guys with names like Messi, Iniesta, Xavi, they were magicians, passing and running and weaving with a practically balletic precision. It was mesmerizingly beautiful. You should look it up on YouTube. There's thousands of videos of those three players defying the laws of physics, creating art on a soccer field. Barcelona was my gateway drug. You would talk about these, you would talk about these sports teams, these soccer teams, and, you know, I just, and you'd be like, you're not interested, are you? And I would try to be interested, and you'd try to explain the leagues to me, and you'd try, you know, <laughs> none of it made any sense. You know, like, I'd finally gotten into baseball. I'd finally started watching. I had finally, like developed an appreciation for the sport yeah. and uh i even had players i liked i mean i was like yeah. a little bit do you, remember, you know do you remember the name matsui of <laughs> i liked matsui a lot there was another one that you really liked yeah what was this that guy M melky cabrera cabrera right i do feel bad about abandoning the yankees but barcelona changed some essential part of me i no longer craved the languid pace of baseball I wanted the breakneck intensity of soccer. Instead of the calming knowledge that the Yankees were going to win all the time, I suddenly wanted uncertainty and chaos. I wanted a game where a single goal could elicit the greatest ecstasy and the greatest sorrow. I wanted a change, something bigger. Somebody said the football is a matter of life and death. Listen, it's more important than that. Somebody said the football is a matter of life and death. I said, listen, it's more important than that. I got excited about the, the sort of the history and linkage between like geopolitics yeah. and the European civil strife and the ethnic divide. <laughs> we started talking about uh, how soccer explains the world. I think, what was that book's name? Yeah, that's the book, yeah. The book Shlomo is talking about is how soccer explains the world, an unlikely theory of globalization. And it may very well be the ur text for this podcast, let alone my love of soccer. In it, Franklin Four wrote about the hidden stories of the game. There aren't any stats or details about who won what. It's something different. Here's Four talking about it at Brigham Young University in 2015. It's not like you need to go digging to find the political significance in soccer. It's all out there on the surface. I would, I would watch World Cups on TV, and there was geopolitical stakes to it. Every time that, say, Germany played the game, they would play against somebody who they had fought a war against. Ford tells a story of this famous moment in the 1990 World Cup, when Germany was playing Holland, two rivals in football and in World War II. And at a certain point, this Dutch player spits on this German player in the middle of the game. And that bit of spittle took on enormous symbolic meaning for the Dutch people, all because of the scale and importance of soccer. People say that was really the end of the post-war era in Holland, um, when Frank Reichard spat on Rudy Voller. If you think he's overstating the political significance of soccer, think about this. Organized soccer is played by over two and a half 
billion people around the world. Billion with a B. Within the city of London, there are 13 teams playing in the top four tiers of English soccer. If you include the non-league semi-professional teams, that number balloons to 41. 41 teams in a single city. And look, to be fair, New York City also has 13 professional teams, but that's if you include baseball, football, men's and women's basketball, men's and women's soccer, hockey, and oh yeah, a few of those teams play in New Jersey. And here's the amazing part. Each of the 13 soccer clubs in London represents a specific neighborhood, a tiny slice of the population, and by extension, an incredibly specific culture. And this is true all over the world. You know, to illustrate this most poignantly, go to Sao Paulo, Brazil. Sao Paulo has a team called Portuguesa, which is the team of the Portuguese immigrants. There's a, there's a team of the Italian immigrants. There's Corinthians, which is the team of the people. There is Sao Paulo Football Club, which is the team of the elite. These teams are more than just a geographic location. You're not rooting for a soccer team because you like them. You're rooting for them because they represent you. But the question remains, why would I, a New Yorker living 3,500 miles away, identify with a tiny industrial part of North London? In the, the early 1900s, there was a large Jewish community, predominantly working class Jews, who lived in Tottenham. This is Alan Fisher. My name's Alan Fisher. I'm a Spurs fan. And also I'm um, doing a doctorate at the University of Leicester, which is on Spurs fandom. He's also the co-author of the wonderful book, A People's History of Tottenham Hotspur Football Club, the story of the fans that flock to this team. These Jews, as Jewish communities have done over the years, wanted to assimilate into the local population. And what used to happen is that they used to go to shul on Saturday morning and there was enough time to, to slip away, have a, a, a bowl of lotion soup and still get to Spurs um, for, for three o'clock. <laughs> and there was a suggestion, which I'm, I'm not sure is necessarily in the Talmud, that it was perfectly legitimate to, 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 to jump on a trolley bus <laughs> because somehow that wasn't petrol driven. By the late 20s, it was estimated that almost 30% of the fans of Tottenham Hotspur were Jews. And then in December 1935, an international friendly game was organized between England and Germany. On the morning of the match, London is flooded with 10,000 German supporters out to enjoy themselves. Spoichen Sie Deutsch? You can always tell a good Nazi by his cap. These were the early days of the Third Reich, and in an effort to use sport as a diplomatic tool, the game was agreed to be played on English soil. And the stadium that was chosen was White Hart Lane, home of Tottenham Hotspur. Inside the ground, they're packed as tight as sardines as the teams come out together, a German and an Englishman side by side. First comes the important ceremony of saying Heil. This caused a lot of protest, not just within the Jewish community, but within local trade unionists and people who were opposed to Hitler's fascism. Um, and the, the trade unionists and, and came out and organised a demonstration against the game taking place at White Hart Lane because it was seen as an affront to Jewish people. Well, and they and they flew the the, the swastika over White Hart Lane, right? Yeah, they flew the swastika over White Hart Lane until somebody nipped up onto the top of the West Stand and pulled it down again. I love that story. It represents to me exactly what Shlomo and Franklin Four were talking about. The soccer team as a specific slice of cultural identity. So Tottenham, for, for me, 
was it was the Jewish team. So I started to pay attention to them, and I think that that sort of was a good way to pay attention to uh, to soccer and entrance. I remember Shlomo telling me about the Jewish team, and honestly, I remember not being convinced. But then he dragged me to Floyd's Bar, to the official supporters club of Tottenham Hotspur in New York City. And when I walked in, I found myself surrounded by people, hundreds of people, squeezed in around tiny television screens, craning their necks to not spill a drop of beer while also not miss a single second of action. They applauded every pass, they sang for every player, and when we scored, it was practically religious. Did that stuff do anything for you, that like walking in and hearing the people singing and stuff like that? Well, absolutely, absolutely. And I think where I, where I differed is, I was lucky, I was interested in soccer, but I needed an excuse to be a supporter of something. I needed a reason. Like, so the Jewish thing was like, oh, this is the Jewish team. Of course, that's why I'm doing this. I belong here, right? I needed a, an external like, reason to, to show up there. But for me, someone who had grown up with prepackaged sports anthems and cheerleaders and incredibly loud, over-instructive sports experiences, this was the purest, most authentic, practically animal fandom I had ever seen. What I can remember, of course, is the noise. The noise is echoing around the, under, under the stands in this, this old-fashioned stand. I can remember the wooden seats that they had. I can remember the clatter when everybody stands up when there's a goal or there's nearly a goal, and you can just hear this clatter um, reverberating around the old girders. I was a young Jewish boy trying to find his way, trying to find his identity. And you find that sense of belonging in the sound of the crowd. And I wanted desperately to be part of that, almost as much as I wanted Spurs to be successful. Yeah, me too. And that's a good thing, because Tottenham have been only sort of successful since I've started following them. I mean, they play beautiful, attacking, flowing soccer, and then they finish the season in fifth or sixth place, always behind their rivals. Always almost great. Remember last year? You probably heard about Leicester City, the fairy tale team that defied the odds and won the English Premier League? It really is a, a, a fairy tale a story. story. Yeah. Well, the team that was chasing them the whole time, writing their own fairy tale story, was Tottenham Hotspur. And in the end, Leicester won. Leicester was the story. We finished third, behind Arsenal, our arch rivals. Urban Dictionary actually has a word for that Spursy to consistently and inevitably fail to live up to expectations. Now, first of all, I'm a four-time college dropout with low-grade depression and a fairly low self-esteem. Spursy describes me. Of course I was going to identify with this team. But also, there's something else at work here. That need to belong that Alan felt and I felt, that's biological. I have a brand new daughter. I can stare at her for hours. And part of why I can do that is that we have these things called mirror neurons in our brains. When she smiles, my brain tells me to smile. I feel her smile happening inside of me. That same process 
is occurring when I watch Tottenham play. Put another way, here's what Eric Simmons said in the Washington Post. It is not an obnoxious affectation when a devotee of a team uses the word we. It's a literal confusion in the brain about what is me and what is the team. In all kinds of unconscious ways, a fan mirrors the feelings, actions, and even hormones of the players. When I watch my team play, testosterone pumps through my veins, my mirror neurons fire, my heart rate increases, my brain plays along. The lights are on. That's a good sign. Lights are on, TVs are on. Four people are milling about. That's, that's, that's a good sign. Okay, we're back in Boston at the Kinsale Pub a few weeks ago now. There is, as I can see through the window, there's about like six people at the bar, maybe seven. But the bar's open. They're here. The Kinsale Pub in downtown Boston. The Kinsale is a generic Boston bar, the kind of place where cheery business guys get Bud Lights at lunchtime. But no one's drinking this early in the morning. There's coffee and a breakfast buffet, and all around me, there are Spurs fans in their shirts. They're nervous, and I love it. Right now, I just let you know what's going through my mind is I've sat at this table for two other games where we've lost it. That's not good. <laughs> I, feel like, I feel like we definitely have something. The game starts and people are living and dying with every pass, every clever piece of defending, every near miss and every brush with disaster. That's all of us. Our mirror neurons firing. We're playing with them. And in this bar with my dad and my uncle sitting next to me, for 90 minutes, I am somehow closer to these strangers. It's a sense of belonging, and I still feel it when I see when I'm wearing a Tottenham like hat or a scarf or one of my jerseys, which I, I gained a little weight now, so I <laughs> gotta squeeze into. But like when I'm doing that, when I'm like on my bike and I'm wearing it in the summer, and I see someone else, and we both like stop and acknowledge each other. I, I, I feel like I've almost pulled a muscle whipping my head around when I see someone walk by me with like a Tottenham hat on or a scarf <laughs> on or something. And and what's weird is like you started following them from a, because they were a, a Jewish team, but like if you were walking down the street of Brussels and you saw somebody with a mug and David on, you wouldn't stop them and be like, "Hey, Jew!" But if you saw someone in Brussels wearing a Tottenham jersey, you would you would say hi, right? Absolutely. And that's the thing. Fandom is something so much more than just liking a team. It's this weird hybrid community where whether you inherit your fandom or just stumble into the right bar at the right time, at some point you choose to remain a fan. And that moment of choosing, it's like a religious conversion. You stumble into it, something makes you stay, and then you are converted. I got interested in football when I was about nine years old. Um, I didn't really have much interest in it up until that point. That's Javid Mavahadi. He's the host of the Tottenham Family Podcast, a show about all things Tottenham. I met Jav on Facebook in one of the four Tottenham chat groups that I belong to. Last year on my birthday, I flew to London for the first time to see a few games. Javid got me the tickets, met me at the Seven Sisters tube station, and introduced me to these other fans. Glorious nutjobs, all of them. Joss, Nick, Emma, Mary... 
And these strangers, just like the strangers in the Spurs pubs of New York and Boston, they immediately felt like family. I called Javid the other day to hear how he got hooked. It was the 1990 World Cup, and the, the two standout players in the, in the England team at the time were Gary Lineker and Paul Gascoigne, both of whom played for, 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 for Tottenham Hotspur. There's the stumble. But all, there was also something mystical about the name Tottenham Hotspur. In English football, you've got lots of Uniteds and lots of cities and the odd town. A Spurs, there was just something mystical about that, Tottenham Hotspur. That's the hook. And here's the conversion. But the funny thing was, the point at which I suddenly started supporting them, it then felt like I'd been supporting them for, for all my life. It just felt like it was meant to be. And I can remember sort of running up those stairs and emerging from the shadows. That's Alan again. And beneath you, you have the pitch, this green, verdant, almost magical space. And... The heroes appeared before me. These were almost gods to me. Gods. Meant to be. Something mystical. I've used these words as well. And you might think this is a lot of fuss about a single group of 11 men that play on a team that wears a chicken as a logo, but Spurs changed me. This might be too strong an assumption, but it's like... As your mental health improved, you were able to latch on to a sport that involved more togetherness and more like of an active stance, whereas baseball is this very passive watching experience and passive involvement. Like it's very isolated, right? You never went to a bar. No. To be with other people. Like it was like your, it was a isolated activity. Right. Like I went from being alone on the couch to getting on a plane and flying across the world. Right, which you've ne- you would never done, right? Yeah. I no. mean, that was like a huge thing for you, that you wanted to go to London by yourself. And, you know, it is. it is. It's like you embarked on something that's that's helped you rise to a better part of yourself in some ways. Like, you know, it, that's interesting. Yeah, like, my soccer fandom made me yeah. a better person. In some ways, yeah. So how do I go from being a better person to having white-hot hatred and screaming at a TV set? How do I become a fanatic? That drive to belong, that tribalism, it comes at a cost. In Glasgow, Scotland, there are two teams, Rangers and Celtic, split on strict sectarian lines, Catholic and Protestant, conservative and socialist, separatist and loyalist. And when they play each other in a game known as the Old Firm, the results on the field often turn into violence on the streets. Even as recently as this year, 2016, a man was stabbed in the face and left for dead because of the color of his shirt. And in the 70s in England, when Allen was going to every home game and almost every Tottenham away game, the fans of other teams would use the Jewish character of Tottenham as a means of attack. They would uh, sing anti-Semitic songs. There were some extremely unpleasant songs about concentration camps. songs with the word Yiddin, not to celebrate identity, but to, to attack us. And this pernicious hissing sound, which you still hear at some games, um, the hissing of, of gas in the gas chambers. The anti-Semitic abuse was so pervasive that the Tottenham supporters actually leaned into it. They took it on board to nullify the abuse, to nullify the effect of the abuse, to throw it back in the faces of the 
abusers. And there was a, a period which, which was, I've got to say, a little bizarre, where you had non-Jews turning up to matches in uh, skull caps and waving the Israeli flag. It's a bit odd, but odder still, the hardcore Tottenham supporters began to refer to themselves as Yids, as Jews. They called themselves the Yid Army, grabbing that term of abuse and removing it of its malice. At its best, it's an incredible act of solidarity, the many protecting the few. But also, I'm not sure I love the idea of my people, my history, my identity, being reduced to a sports mascot. And then there's this. As recently as last year, a supporter for West Ham United was arrested for giving the Sig Heil at a game against Tottenham Hotspur. And look, I can say that the fans of Tottenham are better than that, like we're not like them, that we come from this long storied history of social justice and strength. And I can even list it for you. We had the first player of color to play on an English football team. We had Jewish players as early as the turn of the century. We have a pride flag that hangs in our stadium at every single home game. Kivano Becharta Viotano Kidashta. Because you chose us and you made us holy from all of the other peoples. But the truth is, according to a study in 2015, my beloved Tottenham Hotspur supporters were the third most likely to be arrested for committing racial abuse in the whole league. And that's the danger of tribalism. That's the machinery of fanaticism. You no longer see the worst parts of yourself. You no longer believe them to exist. You're willing to accept so much just to belong. There's one more story I want to tell you that has as much to do with my fandom as it does to the current state of the world. There was a game, another game, that was played a few years ago between Arsenal and Tottenham. That day, Sunday the 26th of February, um, I was in Dubai, of all places. So at the time, the company that I worked for, we did an annual trade show, and it was in Dubai. I had arrived, gone to my hotel room a few hours earlier before the match had started, and um, I'm unpacking. And I see my suits for the trade show, I've got my tie, I've got shirts, and oops, I've forgotten my trousers. So I ended up really panicking. So I, I, I get into a taxi and I go to the Mall of Emirates and I'm, and I'm desperately trying to find some trousers that uh, fit, that are the right type. Find a pair of trousers, buy them, get back in the taxi. I'm rushing to get, get back to, 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 to the hotel to watch the game. Um, and we're stuck, in tra- we're stuck in traffic. So I, I've, I missed the first, I don't know, five or 10 minutes of the match. In the seventh minute of the game, we take the lead. Louis Saha deflected in. It's 1-0 to Tottenham Hotspur inside four minutes. Arsenal season simply gets worse and worse. There's the anger and frustration that I need to get back to the hotel to watch the game and, I, and it started and I'm missing it. Yet at the same time, there's the emotion of joy when I see the fact that Saha has scored. A few minutes later, another goal is scored. And Spurs are 2-0 up at Arsenal. And at this point, I'm, I'm sending a text to a colleague of mine back in the UK who's an Arsenal fan. And, you know, I'm, I'm giving it to him and I'm on cloud nine. And in fact, if anything, I probably was expecting a third. A two-goal lead in soccer is an incredible advantage. Nine times out of ten, this game is over. 
But then the impossible happens. And it's a brilliant header. Five minutes before half time. And Sanya gives Arsenal a lifeline. Arsenal scores once. Great effort. Oh, how about that? And then twice. Arsenal two. Tottenham two. And then again. Brzezinski's on the end of it. And Arsenal's comeback is complete. And again. It's four for Arsenal. And again. Could not make this up. No scriptwriter could ever write this. It wasn't good. It wasn't good. I think it might have been the fourth or the fifth Arsenal goal. And Luke and Modric just rolled down his socks. Um, and it was just like, I don't know, the feeling of he did given up. Uh, it was just a feeling of deflation. And that, that moment summed it up for me. In the bar where I watched in Brooklyn all those years ago, there was a deep, almost tangible silence as the seconds wound down towards the end of the game. And then, a single voice began singing. Tottenham till I die, I'm Tottenham till I die, I know I am, I'm sure I am, Tottenham till I die. Tottenham till I die, I'm Tottenham till I die. Someone threw his arm around me, the final seconds ticked away, the crowd began to sing. Over and over again. And just like that, I'm okay. Joy welling up from the deepest part of my belly. We have songs we sing when we win, We have songs we sing when we lose. And I'm singing with this stranger, with all of them. We're singing for each other. We're singing for Javid. We're singing for our boys on the field. We're united. We lost 5-2. We lost bad. But it's going to be okay because we have each other. That gesture plays out in pubs in New York City, Boston, London. It plays out in stadiums all around the world. And it plays out on Fifth Avenue as people gather to shout, not my president. It was my feeling then, as it is now, that the most enduring form of community, the best version, the one that avoids fanaticism, that leans towards righteousness, is the one born out of the ashes of defeat. I wrote about it back then, that it is our losses that drape us in glory, our heartbreaks that bind us and keep us coming back, hoping dreaming of redemption. When we win, we may feel strong, but when we lose, we are strengthened. When we lose, when anyone loses at anything, we have a choice. Go home depressed, hungover, deflated, or dry your eyes, clear your throats, and remember that though we are flawed, we stand together, facing the unknown, a community united in a singular purpose the belief that one day soon we will once again celebrate. Until the next time we win and we forget all over again. So that's the episode. You can find Javid on Twitter at THF Podcast. Alan's at Spurs Blogger. And I am at Aaron Wolf. That's Aaron Wolf with two A's and an E at the end. 
drop me a line. I'd love to hear what you think about the episode. And you can find everything we've talked about, including links to some incredible videos at www.aaron-wolf.com forward slash first time. I'm still working out how often I'll release these. This kind of production takes a lot of work, so please subscribe on iTunes or Stitcher or your favorite podcatching software. That's really the best way to make sure you don't miss an episode. And while you're there, leave us a rating and write a comment. It helps other people find us. And finally, tell your friends. I'm looking for true stories about the way sports have changed your life. The tip line is open at firsttimelongtimestories at gmail.com. The music you heard on this episode was Pineapple by Poddington Bear, Tech Toys by Lee Rosevere, Autumn Woes and Wandering by Ryan Little, As Colorful as Ever by Broke For Me, and finally Filing Away by Blue Dot Sessions. I found it all on freemusicarchive.com. And as always, thanks for listening. I need a better sign off. I'll figure something out for next time. Bye.